This is Art Matters. I'm Farron Gibson. This series is produced by Art UK, the online home of the UK's public art collections. Discover paintings, sculptures, art stories, and more at artuk.org. You can also follow us on social media on the handle artuk.org, spelling out the word dot. Within Western art history, images of food can be found in the ancient world, including Egyptian tomb paintings, Roman mosaics, and more. But it was not until much later that we began to see still life paintings of food in the way that we think of them now. To us, still life as a genre seems like a really obvious painting choice, but actually it was quite revolutionary when it first appeared. That's food historian and artist Tasha Marks. This was a culture that was used to paintings of grand history themes and religious iconography and actually to paint a basket of fruit as Caravaggio did in 1599 was quite a revolutionary thing to do. And he also was imbuing that image with symbolism. So it wasn't just a basket of fruit, it was about storytelling and it was also about how really the material culture of the table had become something that was worthy of attention. Caravaggio's painting shows a wicker basket filled with a mix of grapes, apples, pears, and figs. At first glance, it's a rather appealing selection of fruit, but on closer inspection, we see that the apple and some of the leaves have wormholes, and there are other signs of decay and overripeness in the fruit. The image could be a metaphor for the temporal nature of life or fading beauty. We see a similar still life appear in Caravaggio's painting, Supper at Emmaus, where Jesus appears to two disciples after his resurrection. In each painting, the basket teeters just over the edge of the table, creating a feeling of precariousness. As viewers, we get the sense that these images are not just visual documentations of fruit, but a metaphor. And that way of thinking is quite a fairly new one to this idea of having something represent something else. And actually also food being something that was so symbolic. It wasn't just fuel. You get definitely food as a status symbol. And for that to appear not just on tables, but in paintings, in artwork, in architecture, you know, it was the legacy of the table is not just one that is about food and that is edible. It is about stone and paint and and all these other things. So I think that is the thing that really changed in the Renaissance is our focus on food became decorative. It became about power and status and more than necessarily the sum of their parts. The size and sophistication of these images grew in the 16th century, particularly with Dutch and Flemish masters. At this time, we see food still lives incorporated within larger market, kitchen, and shop scenes. A series by Joachim Bocheler in the National Gallery Collection presents the four elements of earth, air, water, and fire through depictions of food associated with each. The four paintings are crowded with detailed images of vegetables, meat, and cooking utensils, creating a feeling of abundance. For a period, artists tried to maintain a degree of religious subtext to their work, as was common in art of the time, but eventually, these works came to stand alone as genre scenes and elaborate still lives. The Flemish masters definitely had the upper hand in that genre, and all the gorgeous still lives from around that era in the sort of lowlands were incredible. And for that genre to really be mastered by a group of paintings meant that their status went up and it became very desirable. It was a trend, it became something that everyone wanted to have in their homes. Part of the fun in viewing still life paintings is deciphering the meanings they potentially hold. In our episode on animals and art, we spoke about how some animals can be metaphors for ideas, such as a boar as a symbol of gluttony, or a dove for the Holy Spirit. The same can be true for symbolism and representations of food. It's almost like a lost language. We've sort of lost 
many of the meanings as we have with a lot of allegory in paintings that through a modern lens it's really hard to necessarily understand everything that the artist meant but definitely certain fruits and forms that appeared in still lives were meant to represent different things. If you just think of a still life, it's probably got a lobster in it. It's probably got a lemon with the peel unfolded in a certain way. So there is that uh, language that we're used to seeing, but we're not necessarily sure what it means. If we look back through various texts and through various ways of understanding things, then the lemon, for instance, could be a symbol of luxury and love and longevity. But then it's also about sourness and disappointment. So it's a two-sided thing, even something as simple as a lemon. And also it could be something as simple as the fact that a lemon peel unfolding and, and twisting around the scene was a way for the artist to show off their skills. So it goes sort of twofold in functionality and form. And then something like a lobster it's a beautiful item to paint, but also it could symbolise wealth and gluttony and temptation. And also lobsters are a funny thing to paint because when we look at a still life, often they're the raw forms. We have these really bountiful fruits and vegetables, but meats are often shown raw as well as cooked. And a lobster is an interesting one because I, I don't think I've ever seen a painting of an uncooked lobster. Whenever we see them in paintings, they're always bright red. And that means that they are dead so in a way a lobster is also a memento mori a reminder of life and death so there's lots of ways of looking into these things and people could make sort of sly insinuations through what they maybe chose to commission to put in their still life or what the artist decided to put in so it was quite a subtle art form but it is a very interesting one a 17th century painting by Jan Steen titled The Interior of an Inn, parentheses, The Broken Eggs, shows a merry tavern scene with a young woman standing next to three men. One man laughs heartily while tugging at her skirt, while the other two look on. The food in this scene gives us a hint at what's actually happening here. The phallic symbol of a pan points towards the man grabbing the woman's skirt, and broken eggs and oyster shells lay on the ground. Oysters are often said to be an aphrodisiac, and broken eggs were sometimes used at this time to symbolize the loss of a woman's virtue. The woman attempts to pull the man's hand away, and we can surmise that the artist, who used his own likeness as the laughing man, by the way, is hinting at the man's lustful intentions. Another food rich in symbolism in still life paintings is the pineapple, which adds texture and visual interest to a still life, but also implies luxury and wealth pineapples have become so much more than the sum of their parts they are sort of a symbol of of wealth and and some say of welcome and that was because of the way that they were received in this country so a pineapple when it first arrived in the UK was a very very exclusive object they were being shipped overseas and they had often survived a very long journey so I think the first pineapple that arrived in England, it was a single pineapple. That was the only one that survived the journey and it was presented to the king who declared it the best fruit in all the world. So there was a pineapple mania from the very get-go and everyone wanted one. And actually pineapples take about two years to grow one fruit. You know, when we go to the supermarkets and we can buy them for a pound, just bear that in mind. So as soon as people started to grow them here, which also became a bit of a trend to have your own hothouse and try grow your own pineapple, you are spending two years investing in one fruit. So it became a real status symbol and a badge of honour to have a pineapple at your party, to have it as part of your centrepiece. And then as such, the centrepiece, which would have been a literal pineapple on the table, evolves into pineapple iconography that we see everywhere around us. As soon as you start looking for pineapples, you will see them everywhere, even now. But particularly this relationship between pineapples and architecture, 
because the pineapple was seen as a symbol of wealth and welcome because arguably people used to go and meet them at the docks because they wanted them as fresh as possible. So as soon as they arrived, they would get the pineapple and they would run it home. You often get pineapples appearing on gateposts and in architectural motifs, in friezes, all, all around different architectural examples, particularly during the Georgian era. But it is amazing to realise that really a foodstuff's legacy isn't something that is about eating necessarily, but about architecture and permanence. A painting by Thomas Stewart in the National Trust Collection exemplifies the significance of pineapples in earlier centuries. A royal gardener is shown on bended knee presenting a pineapple to King Charles II. There's some debate about whether or not he's presenting the first pineapple grown in England. The delicacy with which the gardener presents the fruit to the monarch conveys how special and luxurious it would have been at the time. The foods that artists chose to immortalize through painting give us insight on the items that people valued and what they ate. What's interesting when you look back at, say, larder images or market images in, from the past, there's a, there's a nice image on the Art UK site called Cook Made with Still Life of Vegetables and Fruit by Nathaniel Bacon, and it's in the Tate collection. And that shows this, this lovely market scene with cabbages and fruits and, and vegetables and this sort of buxom uh, market lady selling it all. So it's a quite interesting one because it was showing everyday items, things like cabbages. And when you look back in the past at things that were everyday, that can be very revealing. If we think about what we consume every day, that we are unlikely to necessarily chronicle that. So if we look back in time and we can find an image of general fruits and vegetables, of, of market scenes, of things happening, you can see a lot more things un unveiling. So uh, Juan Sanchez Catan, his amazing larder images that show the way that small songbirds were stored ready for consumption or uh, how that they used to hang fruit and vegetables to keep them fresher for longer is very interesting. Or I think there's an image that often does the roundabout of a watermelon and just showing how in a couple of hundred years ago, a watermelon looked very different from what we have now today. So how breeding and, and fruits and veg can then evolve over time. So just lard images, something every day can be incredibly revealing. While there was more than one watermelon breed available in Europe in the 17th century, there are several paintings from this period that display watermelons split in half with the white of the rind surrounding pockets of red melon and seeds in a star-like fashion. The presence of these curious watermelons alongside paintings of melons closer in appearance to what we are used to today give a visual history of selective breeding practices. We can see an example of the older breed of watermelon in a playful image by Giuseppe Arcimboldo called Summer. The artist is famous for his portraits of people composed of fruits, flowers, and other items. In Summer, he uses summer fruits to make the head and torso of a man, bringing a whimsical energy to the traditional still life. A pear serves as the nose, plums make up the collar of a blouse, a watermelon sits on the stomach, and so on. Turning to the modern era, we can still look to still life images to learn about a society's changing relationship with various food items. Let's discuss the 1941 painting, Coupons Required, by Leonora Kathleen Green in the Imperial War Museum collection. It shows a selection of foods that would have you need coupons for, for rationing. So showing this sort of idea of everyday foodstuffs being something that was super desirable of meat and butter and sugar. We learn about perspective through foodstuffs and what people think is important. And that's also very interesting. Whether it's Paul Cezanne experimenting with perspective through painting still lives of oranges, or Andy Warhol commenting on American consumerism with an image of a Campbell's soup can, artists have continued to use food as a subject through to the present day. 
With a little knowledge of the history of some foods, we can extract deeper layers of meaning from artworks. I love the work of Cara Walker and her work often comments on the experience of being black in America and particularly the history of oppression in the Caribbean and beyond. And her piece called A Subtlety or The Marvelous Sugar Baby is, I think, one of the most stunning and uncomfortable and alluring pieces of sculpture I've ever seen. It's a five story high sugar sculpture that was at the Domino Sugar Factory in New York. And the central figure is a sphinx-like form with a black woman's face. And Cara Walker has said that it is about commenting on civilization, but also on ruin. And I think having those two things side by side is something that often goes hand in hand when it comes to food, that there is a duality of meaning and different ways that you can interpret things. And for me, sugar is a really key example of that because it can draw you in and it can appeal to you and it can be about novelty and fun and enjoyment, but it can also make you feel uncomfortable and unsettled and ashamed. And I think that having those two things side by side makes it very powerful. There's another artist that uses that sort of rhetoric in her work called Shelley Miller, who's another favourite of mine, who does these amazing sugar murals in ports that were historically important to the sugar trade. I love the work of Jennifer Rubel. She is an artist who often does these very immersive, interactive installations with food. And my favourite piece of hers is called Padded Cell. And it was a room that was made out of cotton candy. And it starts off as quite uncomfortable and oppressive and you don't really want to touch the walls. It's all a bit sticky and uncomfortable. And then the thing about it was that then people were allowed to eat it. So it was only on show for a day. And this idea that you are allowed to do that in an art gallery, that you can break down those boundaries of what is acceptable. The stories are acceptable to tell, but also your behaviour, to amend the behaviour of the viewer is something that's very powerful and something that food is amazing at doing. And it's also something that I like to engage with in my own work, as well as being a food historian. I work in the mediums of taste and smell. So I've got to do all sorts of installations over the years at the V&A and the British Museum and Barbican using food really as a way to tell different stories and the sensory capacity of food and smell is never ending. It's apparent that beyond being a necessity of life, food is something that can bring pleasure and hold meaning in our lives. Perhaps this is part of what makes it such an enchanting muse for artists. When I first started working with food, I was amazed that I felt the same in the kitchen as I used to in the art studio. And I think that Food is such a fascinating medium to play with because it's familiar to all of us. And actually, that's such a great platform to start with because you can reach people on many different levels and that it's open to interpretation and people's own experiences and feelings. And then you can layer that on top with these many different narratives. It's almost more like performance. I mean, eating is a performative act and that it focuses on a lot of things like behavior and ritual. And if you're using that as a medium, whether you are painting a still life or you are doing a performance with food, you are reaching a much wider audience in a way that is innately human. And I think that's what makes it so powerful. Many thanks to Tasha Marks for a brilliant discussion on food and art. If you're hungry for more, you can find images related to this episode and other food history articles by Tasha on artuk.org. If you're a listener of this series and have not yet left us a review, please be sure to do that now wherever you listen to your podcasts. 
as always, thank you for listening and please join us again next time.